I'm Amber Harper from the Burned In Teacher Podcast and a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Dr. Sarah Fine, an award-winning author who recently published the book In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Transform the American High School with co-author Dr. Jal Mehta. Dr. Fine began her career as a high school English teacher and instructional coach in 2005 in Washington, D.C. She's currently the director of the teacher preparation program at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, an accredited graduate institution associated with a network of diverse charter schools in San Diego, California. Dr. Fine also teaches doctoral level courses in educational leadership at the University of California in San Diego with an emphasis on deeper learning strategies and project-based learning. So before we jump into this episode, folks, I do have a special request for all of our loyal listeners. Uh, Let's call it a call to action for the month of February. If you could get out your smartphone, go to the Apple podcast app, search for reimagined schools. And if you would write a review, click on that link, give us a rating and a few comments and tell us what you like about the podcast. Uh, Our goal is to spark new conversations and big ideas, to reimagine K-12 education, and that happens with all of you, our loyal listeners. So please encourage your friends and colleagues to get onto the the podcast app and give us a rating and review. I would very much appreciate your thoughtful time and opinions. So let's get to this episode, folks. It's a good one as we discuss deeper learning and how to remake America's high schools with Dr. Sarah Fine. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is the co-author of an amazing book on remaking the American high school. A big welcome to Dr. Sarah Fine. How are you, Sarah? I'm great. Thanks so much for for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You've done some tremendous work, and I want to talk about your day job a little bit, too, and and designing uh, training opportunities for those folks out in San Diego with the New Tech High Network. But uh, let's start with the book. The name of the book is In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School with co-author Jaw Mata. Did I pronounce that correctly? Mata, yeah, pretty close. Jaw Mata, so my apologies to Jaw. But uh, congratulations to you both. You were just recognized as the winners of the 2020 Graymeyer Award in Education, a prestigious award that comes uh, out of the University of Louisville, which is, again, just about an hour down the road from me. So congratulations. You guys have had a lot of success. Thank you. Thanks so much. So you're actually going to be in my neck of the woods here, uh, not once, but twice in 2020. On February 24th, uh, Sarah will be uh, presenting at the Next Generation Leading and Learning Summit in Louisville as part of the Kentucky Association of School Administrators uh, Professional Learning. 
And then you'll come back in April, I believe, to present for the uh, the Graymeyer Award. So uh, have you been to Kentucky? And what are you looking forward to as you come and kind of talk about your research? Uh, I never have. I'm, that's uh, part of why I'm so excited to get to go, not just once, but twice. Um, I've spent some time recently in Tennessee working with some educators there. So um, I guess I'm starting to get familiar with, uh, with the Southeast. But um, no, I just, I love talking to uh, teachers and principals and policymakers to sort of find out what resonates from our work and to learn from them about what they're doing. Um, there's just, you know, there's, there's a lot of commonalities. Uh, you know, this is a spoiler alert on our book, but there are some features I think that, um, do sort of unite uh, and link schools across the country and, um, you know, some of the ways we've set up schools and the goals that we pursue in them, but there's also a lot of variation. And so I love, I love learning from what folks are doing out in the field. The book came out, I believe, in the spring of 2019, so, you know, really hasn't been out for a long time, Uh, but the thing that really I find fascinating is you started doing this research project around 2010. You visited 30 different schools. You sat in uh, countless classrooms to observe and talk to teachers and kids, but, um, you know, again, I I think the original intent uh, when you started this project was a little different than what it actually ended up being. So you actually went through quite a few twists and turns along the way from start to finish. Um, yeah, so I was a high school teacher. I started my career working at a, a school in um, the District of Columbia. And um, after working there for four years, I um, got kind of restless, not not so much with my students, but trying to sort of understand what, what models of schooling were out there other than the one that I had experienced as a student and then was working inside of as a teacher. So. Um, that's how I find my way back to grad school, um, to Harvard, and that's when I encountered uh, John Meda, who became my collaborator. And we um, we realized at that time that we shared some core beliefs. So effectively, it was uh, I met him. It was 2009, so the No Child Left Behind Act had kind of um, really sort of gotten some teeth in the in the prior five years or so, and I experienced that for sure um, within my own um, within my own school. And, uh, you know, I, I found that some of the things that, that NCLB encouraged us to do as teachers were very productive and, and other things felt very constraining, um, in particular, the kind of like myopic focus on tests as the only way to measure student success. You know, like tests felt like it gave me some information about my kids, but really not a lot about uh, who they were as whole people. And it certainly didn't encourage the kind of authentic uh, engagement um, in content that I was hoping for with them. And, and y'all really agreed with that. I think both of us sort of felt like No Child Left Behind was a, you know, it was a well-meaning policy that had um, sort of narrowed the conversation about what schools could be for kids and what learning can be at its best. Um, and so we we effectively were very idealistic at the time. Um, and we set out to try to find some schools that we thought were doing work that really showed what schools could be at their best um, beyond just kind of basic skills um, as measured on tests. And so what we thought we were going to do was spend a year or two in the field learning from sort of the best examples out there of high schools and write up those cases and send them out into the world as examples for people to learn from. And it would be as simple as that. And of course, as you already uh, alluded to, the project actually took us closer to 10 years. It was about six years of field research. Um, and, you know, we basically couldn't find what we were looking for at the, at the start. You know, we, we saw a lot of really great teaching 
we stumbled across a lot of classrooms where very rich, powerful learning was happening. But we did not find schools, which as whole institutions, were doing that kind of work with the consistency we hoped for. Um, and so that really kind of, for a while, it sent us into a tailspin. And then we picked ourselves off the ground and figured out sort of, okay, well, what are the questions we want to ask about this thing we're encountering? And so we basically did a lot of work trying to understand why schools look the way that they do and the history and sort of political context there. And then we spent a lot of time trying to, to learn from the best pockets that we found, which, like I said, were not always schools. They were often just classrooms or maybe in some cases like a department or a group of teachers that were really making some headway somewhere. So, so yeah, it, it definitely uh, it definitely took a lot of flexibility on our part in terms of adapting uh, the project that we thought we were starting. You know, I've had the good fortune to talk to some amazing people uh, on the podcast uh, just talking about this idea that we have to change this traditional industrial model of schooling. So that's a topic that, that my listeners are going to be very familiar with. But I found something, uh, I don't know if it's in one of your bios or maybe on your website, talking about this idea that uh, you're passionate about transforming schools and classrooms into more humanizing places to teach and learn. And we don't talk enough about uh, humanizing schools. What does that mean to you? Yeah, that means everything to me. Um, you know, spend a lot of time thinking through kind of how do I put a, a sort of elevator pitch on my on my work. I think that um, schools, as they have been set up as institutions in this country, tend to be very dehumanizing, and I don't think it's an accident. Um, I think, you know, first of all, to, you know, have a mass public institution in the first place is a very difficult thing to do, given all the variations in context and, um, and sort of individual need that you encounter. And so I think, first of all, just by, by being an institution that's kind of batch processing kids in a significant way across context, it's difficult to respond to sort of the range of human need and to sort of um, celebrate the range of human capacity inside of an institution. And then there's some very particular things about American schools, um, which have to do, I'm, I'm guessing some of your previous um, guests have talked about this, but the way that the purposes we set schools up to begin with, right, especially in the early 20th century, was more about kind of credentialing newcomers to the country, socializing them in certain ways to um, be part of American society as a small number of people conceived it, um, preparing them for industrial era jobs, kind of making sure that everybody can join the assembly line culture the way that uh, the, the economy needed. Um, so there were, there were some purposes that drove the structures that we see in schools today that are not at all about humanizing. They're not about sort of allowing people to explore who they want to be or who they can become. It's really much more about kind of subjugating them to the, you know, the country's economic needs as, as they're being perceived at the time. And so, you know, we have all of these very archaic structures. Um, we have this mass system. It's probably the one common institution that like sort of a very large number of people in this country have some sustained touch with. And so there's profound opportunity there to really imagine empowering people, connecting them with sort of communities beyond the ones that they live in. But schools rarely do that, and I don't think they were set up to do that in the first place. So the schools that are venturing out to try to really be more humanizing places are, are having to push against the grain and sort of create things that have never existed in the first place. Well, and I love the title of the book, In Search of Deeper Learning. And, and what's interesting to me is I have a friend and a colleague, a professor at University of Kentucky in Lexington named Justin Baffin, and he's done some tremendous work with this deeper learning concept uh, across K-12 education here in Kentucky. So uh, kudos to Justin and what they're doing there at UK. But 
uh, I, I think the thing that troubles me the most is if you ask 10 different educators uh, to define deeper learning, you're going to get 10 different answers. Now, I think you guys did a really good job of describing what it is in the book, but why do you think uh, it's really kind of all over the place? Well, I think we have a lot of different influences on our school system in terms of the goals we pursue. So, for example, um, when we think about sort of elite higher education as it existed for a long time, so the folks who who completed high school at all prior to sort of the first quarter of the 20th century were mainly white men from upper-class families who had the means to go through high school and not, not stop and work. Um, and they were the ones who were going on to get a sort of classical higher education. Um, and, you know, higher education is, has been long divided into these disciplinary units, right? So you study Western literature or, you, you know, you study French literature or you study philosophy, et cetera. And so, you know, we have these arguably artificial ways of dividing up the knowledge in the world that sort of at some point universities made a decision to do. And then you have high schools that are at least originally organized to produce people who can go on and do that in college. And so I think often when people think about deeper learning, there's a little bit of defaulting to that tradition of knowledge that, you know, deep learning, for example, in uh, social studies and history has to do with um, doing some version of what, you know, historians might do at the university level which is certainly one particular version of deep learning. I wouldn't argue that that doesn't count, but um, I think that, you know, we work backwards from a really narrowly conceived set of, of notions. And then you have folks who have lived in the world in different spaces who come to teaching with very different sets of beliefs. So they might, for example, teach social studies, but really with a sort of activist oriented lens, like, okay, well, deep learning means understanding how to change society and what it means and what it takes to act to try to sort of change the ways that our institutions function. And so they, you know, it's not like there's one path to becoming a teacher or one set of life experiences that draws people there. So I think I think people are kind of working from what they know. Um, and a lot of them may know the way that higher education tends to think about deep learning, but but others bring other definitions. And then, you know, we have schools that don't really do a good job of trying to cohere people around one set of um, beliefs or, or sort of notion of teaching and learning. And so people kind of close their classroom door and um, do work backward from whatever it is that they, you know, happen to have um, constructed for themselves given their, their life path. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because a lot of times, uh, I know I have conversations with educators that say, you know, just send me the deeper learning curriculum and we'll open the box and we'll pass out the deeper learning books and, and we'll go from there. But you, you really kind of broke it down into three areas of mastery, identity, and creativity, and not to give too much of the book away, but can you kind of talk about how you came up with that, that trio of, of principles? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so how do we come up with it? I think the the simple answer is we observed a lot of powerful learning happening for for students um, in a lot of different contexts, and we tried to understand what was the what were the essential elements that sort of unified them across those contexts. So, so like you said, those three elements were um, identity, mastery, and creativity. So, effectively, what we mean by that is that when learners are engaged very deeply in what they're learning. There's some element of actually learning some stuff that is consequential and mastering some set of skills and body of knowledge. And so that, in some ways, is the most traditional part of deep learning. And it's the one, for example, most tied to sort of um, the way we might think about learning in um, higher education. But it's more than just that. It has to do with the learner starting to see themselves as a participant in the domain. So going, for example, to from I am somebody who shows up to math class every day to I am a mathematician in training or I see myself 
um, as a math person and somebody who uses math in authentic ways. Um, so that's the identity piece and maybe even a kind of like, you know, windows mirrors piece where learners who are deeply engaged in what they're doing often then imagine themselves potentially engaging with that, that domain uh, sort of beyond high school. And so, um, you know, often when we see identity really coming into play, we see students who are suddenly turned on to the idea of majoring in college in a certain domain that they hadn't considered before going into a certain field. Um, and then the creativity point has to do not so much with the way people might traditionally think about creativity. Um, it's more about the fact that in a lot of traditional high school classrooms and just classrooms in general, you see kind of like knowledge being dumped into the heads of, of learners. You see this assumption that sort of the role of the teacher as is as like the intermediary between sort of a bunch of stuff that the world has figured out and the, the minds of their learners. Um, and so it's a very passive role on the part of the learners. Their job is to kind of like listen, take it in, and then at some point spit it back. It's what uh, Faraday called the sort of banking model of education. And what we mean when we talk about creativity being part of deep learning is that learners are actually in, in spaces where they're really engaged are producing knowledge. They're not just receiving it. And so, um, you know, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily coming up with sort of groundbreaking science, for example, but they are in fact engaged in the work of trying to do something new in a, in a kind of uh, novice level way, or they are, for example, uh, constructing an original historical play based on their study of, um, of history, or they are um, writing spoken word poetry that, you know, offers some perspective specific to them about a topic that they've been working on or, you know, so the idea is they're actually, they're, they're not just passively receiving um, something that's already been discovered. They're, they're sort of playing a more active role in the ongoing production of, of the work of the field. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Fine. She's the co-author of a fantastic book entitled In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. And as we think about these 30 schools that you visited, uh, I love the way you kind of put them in categories from, um, you know, no excuses high to Dewey high to attainment high. And these are pseudonyms, you know, to protect the identity of the schools you visited. But I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Uh, first, were you welcomed into those schools with open arms after they knew what you were going to do? And then secondly, after after the books come out, was there any pushback from those folks? Maybe they were, you know, perceived to be something differently than they thought they really were. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, on the were we welcomed question, absolutely yes. Um, we found open doors pretty much wherever we went. And, you know, at the time we were, you know, a junior professor and a grad student um, with just, you know, a set of questions. So it wasn't like folks knew that they were going to end up in a book. Um, and that was something that really struck me is there's there's sort of immense hunger across the board on the part of educators to do things differently and to find ways to be more genuinely engaging to kids. I mean, no, nobody's nobody's out there trying to do badly by their students. I mean, I think it's more a lack of support and a lack of imagination in some cases than it is kind of a lack of desire. So certainly all the schools, once we talked to them about what we were up to and what we were interested in, they were like, please come help us figure out, you know, how we're already doing this and how we can do it better. And um, they, you know, often would engage with us in the long term, long after we had on our field research to try to understand sort of what we were learning and how it could benefit them. So, um, and that, that is true also of teachers and, and students. I don't think we got turned away by a single teacher when we asked to come visit their classroom. I think that it's a real testament to kind of the, the interest in the field um, in this kind of work. Um, and students too just love telling their stories. You know, as soon as they figure out there's an adult who really genuinely wants to hear about their experience in school, it turns out they have a lot to say. 
Um, to your second question, we haven't gotten pushback from schools. Um, I think the only the only big disappointment in some ways is that we weren't able to name some of the schools that were doing really incredible work. Um, and so, you know, as, as you said, the, the major cases that we used in the book, um, we used um, pseudonyms because of our agreements with the schools and with all of the, the schools in our research. Um, and in some ways, I, I feel kind of sad about that because there are several schools in the book whose work I think is really under-recognized, and I really, you know, wish we could be driving more people to go spend time there and, and learn from their examples. Um, but no, I, th- I, think, I think there's a lot of sort of interesting conversation happening as a result of our work. And one of the things that um, we were trying to do that has happened to some extent is you don't often see schools from different kind of philosophical persuasions engaging with each other. So, for example that the world of kind of quote unquote, no excuses, charter schools, although they don't love to call themselves that anymore. Um, of sort of really tightly structured, tight instruction, high poverty charter schools. There's a lot of those networks that talk to each other all the time and learn from each other, but they don't often talk to school networks like the, the um, Dewey high network to use the pseudonym that we use for our project based progressive school. Um, and, you know, schools like, like Dewey High don't, you know, don't usually often reach across the divide to, to get interested in what's going on in schools that are taking a very different stance. So I think one of our goals was kind of to take a lot of different sort of pedagogical stances and sets of beliefs that will drive schools um, around teaching and learning and try to kind of put them in conversation with each other in ways that don't often happen. And again, not to take too much away from the book because, folks, you got to go out and buy this book. Uh, you can get it wherever books are sold. And uh, it's, it's a great read and going to teach you a lot about uh, not only deeper learning, but some strategies you can use to improve your school. But I was fascinated by this idea that most of the really positive change was out on the periphery and not in the common core classroom. Yeah, that that was one of the most surprising findings for us too. I would I would say when we uh, started the study, we assumed we were going to look only at uh, sort of core academic classes in high schools. You know, your math class, English class, social studies, um, etc. And what really started to get us curious was we would ask kids when we went to a new site, a new school. The first thing we would do is each of us would shadow a student for a, for a whole day to just get a sense of sort of the gist of their experience. And we would ask them and their friends, like, okay, if I were to describe to you a space, you know, where you feel really engaged, where time goes by quickly, uh, where you're doing work that matters to you, where you don't throw away the papers you get back the moment you get home, um, you know, where is that in your day? And they would tell us consistently, oh, well, that is my, you know, green engineering elective, or that is my after school newspaper, or, you know, spaces that we don't typically think of as central to the, the sort of project of high schools. Um, and so for a little while, we, you know, we like had our rock brain and we were like, well, we're still studying what we set out to study. Um, and eventually we realized that, you know, kids were, were telling us um, in no uncertain way that we needed to be paying attention to those other spaces. So um, we, we, have, we eventually got the message and started really spending extensive time in some of those peripheral spaces. And sure enough, um, it's not that every single club or elective or extracurricular activity is a space of deep learning, but it turns out those spaces often have a structure um, and a set of kind of working agreements about what you're working on with whom and why that are much more conducive to those three things, identity, creativity, mastery, than our core academic classes. Um, and so, you know, we, our question was kind of like, what can the core learn from the periphery? Why are we not paying attention to what's happening in some of these spaces, given that we could, uh, you know, probably import some of what is going on um, into core classes in a way that would benefit everyone? 
And, you know, uh, since I've been doing the podcast, again, I've had the chance to talk to some amazing people. I've had Ted Dinnersmith and Tony Wagner on, uh, co-authors of Most Likely to Succeed. And, you know, the, the documentary Most Likely to Succeed was really the intro for a lot of people throughout the country um, in this idea of project-based learning. And, you know, PBL's been around for a long time, but I, I really felt like that film really did shine a light on, on all the great things that were happening there. Um, Project-based learning is also a big piece of, of the book and a big piece of the, the deeper learning concept. So can you kind of uh, share a little bit of information about PBL for us? Sure. Yeah. Um, I would, I would say with the, the kind of, it's not exactly a caveat, but it is a, a core part of the book, which is that any way of conceiving of, of teaching and learning in schools can be done in a shallow way or executed in a deeper way. Right. And so we're trying to be really clear in the book that we believe that project-based learning is a very promising platform for rich and powerful learning. And yet we also write fairly extensively in the book about some spaces uh, that we observe where schools and teachers were trying to do project-based learning and it wasn't going very well and it wasn't enormously deep. So, um, you know, I, I don't want any listeners to come away thinking that, you know, PBL in and of itself, no matter what you're doing inside of that container, um, is going to produce deep learning for kids. Um, but that said, we did, we spent a lot of time at this school that in the book we call Dewey High, um, which is a wall-to-wall project-based learning school. It's socioeconomically diverse. Um, it's in an urban area. And we saw a lot of really promising sort of overlap with those three dimensions that we talked about earlier. So, you know, project-based learning effectively is learning that is structured um, with an authentic audience and product in mind from the very start and where kind of the, the content of the learning is rolled up and used in service of momentum towards um, some kind of performance. And so, um, for example, like to draw on the example I used earlier, rather than just doing a unit uh, in history class where you're learning about the Cold War and, you know, eventually writing an analytical paper about the Cold War, um, the teacher might, from the very beginning of the project, have conceived of an original uh, documentary that kids uh, might sort of co-participate in constructing about the repercussions of the Cold War in the present or where they interview um, folks who lived through that era of time and uh, those folks are talking about the ways that it impacted them or something that effectively they're producing something. So you can see right away that project-based learning has a lot of possibilities in terms of that creativity piece because kids are kids are sort of by definition creating something. They're not, they're not just kind of uh, absorbing learning that's already been there. Um, and project-based learning, which is done well, still involves a lot of mastery, right? So it still involves kids really needing to know stuff and develop skills, but they're, they're developing those skills and learning that content in service of producing or creating something that is original. And so it gives them a, a greater sense of authenticity. There's often some choices embedded inside of the projects that kids are doing. Um, there's usually some kind of exhibition of learning at the end, so kids are exhibiting um, sort of the end product of their learning to an audience that ideally is not just each other um, and not even necessarily just each other and their parents, but maybe even community members, folks who are sort of stakeholders or actors in the field that they're working in. And so um, there's kind of a momentum and meaning that gets um, connected to the work that, that isn't necessarily there when the end product of your, of your unit is, you know, the unit test or the unit essay. And one of the things you're doing there in San Diego as one of your many day jobs is working with the High Tech High Network, a network of schools, and uh, also uh, working within the High Tech High Graduate School of Education. So you're actually training people how to 
uh, engage in not only PBL, but certainly deeper learning strategies? Yeah, so um, so you're right. I work at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, um, and my role is actually to run my current role, although I've had a lot of hats around here, is um, I run a pre-service uh, teacher residency program. So we're, we're trying to, so high, the, the graduate school and our schools as a whole do a lot of work trying to kind of support teachers who have been in practice for a while in starting to transition their practice toward more authentic work and project-based work. But my particular role is really to kind of um, insert myself at the very beginning of the, the development process of teachers and to try to um, train novice teachers from the very start. So rather than having them do a huge amount of unlearning of sort of traditional practice that from, from the very beginnings of their career, from before they even have their license to be in a classroom on their own, that they are sort of um, unwinding some of the ways they think about school they're thinking about planning authentic work for kids and they're learning like really discrete tools for, for example, how to really um, facilitate a discussion where kids are doing most of the sense making and really push for kids to be engaging with each other's ideas rather than just with the teacher, which is what you see so much of the time uh, in traditional classrooms. So it's a pretty fun project. Um, we've only been doing it for about a year and a half, so I'm, I'm still learning a lot on the job, but um, it's pretty rewarding to work with teachers so early in their career because there's a lot of, you know, they don't have a lot of ego tied up in their practice yet. So they're really willing to, to try new stuff and kind of let go of um, what they may have experienced themselves uh, in school. And we both know how difficult change can be, especially in the K-12 education environment. Uh, in fact, one could argue that there's been, um, you know, very little change over the last, you know, 100 years uh, other than adding some technology sprinkled in. But I was talking to some colleagues recently and, you know, really excited about deeper learning, project-based learning. A lot of – and you're starting to see that uh, across the landscape. More and more schools and educators are beginning to become interested and implement those things. But someone said recently, what we really need is for uh, deeper learning to go viral. So it, it's out there and, and it just takes off. Uh, what do we have to do to make that happen? Uh, I know that's kind of a loaded question, but what, we need to find some way to just kind of, you know, spread the word and, and get it get it going. Yeah, I, well, yes, absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's a hard question. I think that the good news connects to something we talked about earlier, which is that, you know, every pretty much to a person, every teacher I've met, and I've met a lot of teachers at this point, is really hungry and excited about the idea of finding different ways to engage with kids and would love to be doing richer, more authentic, more intellectually complex work with our students. So, so the desire is there. Um, I'm, I'm completely convinced of that. I even think a lot of like, to your point, a growing number of teachers and parents as well really recognize that like this moment we're in, in the 21st century calls for a different kind of graduate than, uh, you know, than did 50 years ago that, you know, kids who are entering um, our society and our economy at this moment need to be flexible thinkers and creative thinkers. And, you know, we, we don't even know what jobs are going to be available to them um, 10 or 20 years from now, much less five years from now. And so I, I think there is growing recognition and interest and desire to, to do things differently. Um, I think the trick is that, you know, it's one thing to want to do it and it's another thing to know how to do it. And then even if you know how to do it, it's a third thing entirely to have the support and conditions that allow you to do it really well. And so, and I don't think those second two things are guaranteed. So I, I think, first of all, that, you know, you, you kind of don't know deeper learning until you really have experienced it yourself. 
Um, and, and I would argue most people have experienced deep learning in some domain of their life by the time they're adults, but it's not necessarily school. In fact, it's, it's fairly unlikely to have been school for them. And so to, to get them to really imagine what classrooms can look like when kids are deeply engaged and really using both their minds and their, their hearts and their hands, um, you know, you can kind of talk about it in the abstract and you can want it as the kind of absence of the thing that you're, you experience, but to really know what it looks like, you kind of have to observe it. You, you kind of have to kind of live it a little bit. And so I think, um, you know, there's a sense of like, we need to help people really see what it looks and sounds like to do things differently. And that takes getting people out of their own classrooms, out of their own schools, um, you know, which is not something that we, we tend to, um, you know, create incentives for or support for, uh, in our, in our current schools. Um, and then there's a whole layer of like, okay, well, I, you know, my, my colleague down the street is doing this really interesting work. She's experimenting with projects. I've seen her kids really engage differently than my kids are. I can really imagine doing this, but then there's the whole layer of like, does my school support me in doing this? Does the community, is the community of parents, for example, willing to take the risks that would allow me to do this? Because, you know, I think deeper learning is not about piling more stuff on top of what we're already doing. I think it's about sort of changing the logic of what we're doing in some pretty profound ways. For example, it's about slowing down and going deeper when kids are curious about something. And that also, you know, we have a finite amount of time with kids, which means we might not cover as much. Um, and, you know, that we have all kinds of external um, systems in place and policies uh, that kind of reward and in some cases kind of force coverage as, as the important part of what we do. And so teachers need to feel safe to experiment. And then they also need to feel like they have a community inside of which they're, they're trying new stuff and they need some examples of what to do. That's different from what they already know how to do. Well, it's been a great conversation and I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, folks, again, the name of the book is in search of deeper learning, the quest to remake the American high school. You can follow Dr. Fine on Twitter at Sarah M fine. Uh, so you certainly want to connect with her there. Um, you know, as I, as we close, I want to give you one final thought, but I'm just kind of sitting here thinking to myself, uh, you know, book studies are very popular now throughout K-12 education. If I was a high school principal or in a leadership position, this would be a perfect book for, for a book study at the high school level. Um, you know, what's kind of the elevator speech for why folks should buy the book and use it as a learning guide to improve their schools? Well, well, thanks for the endorsement. Um, honestly, I think that the, the most important thing in our book has to do with the sort of profoundly powerful practice of the, the teachers that we spent time uh, in their classrooms. So I, I think it's an opportunity. We tried to write the book in a way that really um, in some ways does what I just said, which is like help people who want to do things differently but don't know what it might look like to do them differently kind of land themselves in the classrooms and spaces that are are supporting really deep, rich work. And so, you know, for example, it's a very narrative book. We try to really paint pictures of what classrooms look like, what talk looks like in those classrooms, what uh, performances look like in those classrooms, how teachers think about their work differently, how principals support the work differently. So I, I think it's really the power of the cases, um, not, not so much what we have to say about them, that um, hopefully is, is, is really useful and, and productive for, for schools that might want to read it together. Well, again, thank you for your time. Enjoy that beautiful weather there in San Diego and keep doing great things out there as you train teachers and kind of spread the word for deeper learning. Thanks so much for having me. So that's a wrap, folks, on another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. 
Again, a big thank you to Dr. Sarah Fine for taking her time to come and talk about the book. It's a good one, folks. So you want to jump out and buy that book wherever books are sold. Be sure to follow her on social media. She's very active on Twitter. And you want to see her speak, too, if you get a chance to jump over to Louisville uh, later in the month. If you're in the Central Kentucky area, uh, you want to hear Dr. Sarah Fine speak about her research. So with that, folks, again, thanks for always listening to the podcast, sharing out with your friends and colleagues. Be sure to jump on that podcast app over at uh, Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. And as always, folks, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.